Welcome to the podcast. This week we talked to Alan Rains. He tells us about his experience of selling B2B products during COVID, something that I think is affecting a lot of companies. What he says is quite interesting. He thinks sales has changed forever based on what is happening now. Alan's background is also very interesting. He tells a story about his cash-based sports ticketing business. Um, It's sort of fun in some ways. Alan's also an avid lover of music, and he talks widely about his experiences, particularly uh, his deadhead experience, which I think is good fun. And he nominates a great piece of American folk to play out on. I think you're going to really enjoy this podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Netzer, Digital First Selling. During these times of COVID and falling telco sales, Digital First Selling is the answer to new customer acquisition, increasing revenues and cost reduction. If you are a telco, an MVNO or an eSIM provider, we have the ideal Digital First Selling as a Service solution for you. The Netzer Digital First Selling Solution enables you to sell and onboard remotely. It will integrate with your BSS and OSS systems and with Salesforce, and we meet all regulatory requirements. Contact pat.flynn at netzer.com so that we can understand your issues and provide you with the best solution. Welcome to the podcast this week, and I have a great guest with Alan Rains. And I think when you hear Alan talk, you realize there's a bit more to him than what the, the title I'm just about to give him. Alan's based into based in Atlanta and sells for Cambridge Global Payments, which is a fintech. And he sells some pretty interesting products, which you'll go into. But uh, first of all, Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Patty. Appreciate yeah. it. That's good. Patty or Pat, both of them work. People understand me. <laughs> I like Patty. All right, good. Yeah, well, uh, maybe you could tell your story about Dublin if you get to that point. But first of all, Alan, you've, you've quite an interesting background. You're not what you might call the conventional corporate salesperson. You, you've had your own businesses and quite interesting businesses, to be honest. That is true. Yes, I, uh, I've I've run three businesses myself uh, that uh, you know I've had some success with. I, I sold one of them uh, when I was a young man at like around 25, and and made some. A nice return on my investment. Uh, and then later in life, I, I ran a global ticket business where we uh, bought and sold tickets for major sporting or events all around the world. Uh, unfortunately, that one met a bad end. I, I almost sold it. I actually had a buyer on the line and it would have been a, a huge payday for me. Uh, but uh, 2008 happened and, and everything kind of went south. Yeah, that's a really interesting business right there. I mean, Maybe just explain to people what you did. And, you know, it's, it was definitely a business where you needed, I guess, the, the old story, buy low, sell high sort of product. Yeah, or sell high, buy low. Um, you know, <laughs> we, we really did it both ways. You know, there's a lot of ticket brokers out there that just buy tickets off of Ticketmaster and, uh, or from box offices and just try to eat up all the inventory and, and run up the price and, and do that. And that's mostly concerts and theater and events like that. But I was in the major sporting event world and, and you cannot go on Ticketmaster and buy a Super Bowl ticket at face value. You can't get a Kentucky Derby ticket from the box office. You cannot get a master's badge 
mm-hmm. uh, from Augusta National. So the only way that you can get those tickets is, is going to be through brokers or friends. And, and the real value that, that I brought to the table in that business was my network. Um, I just was able to amass over time a network of people who had connections to deliver me master's badges or Super Bowl tickets or, you know, whatever the event may be. And so that, that was really the, the asset that I had was that, was that network of people and my ability to continually buy the tickets from them. And, uh, and, and is that, is that something that comes natural to, to Alan? You seem, you're a very, um, you know, easy guy to relate to. I mean, is, is that a natural skill you have to be able to reach out and build up networks? For me, yes. I uh, I moved around a lot as a kid, so I, you know, my father was what I call a corporate gypsy. Everybody always asked me if he was military, uh, but he was, you know, he was a corporate executive who we moved every two or three years. And having to move every two or three years, I, I became very skilled at at making friends because I was always having to make new friends. And mm-hmm. I've always been considered by all of my peers and contemporaries to be, uh, you know a big time networker. People, people come to me to find out what's going on with other people because they know <laughs> that I've probably talked to them. You know, they'll ask me, Hey, what happened to Joe? And, you know, cause they know that I've stayed in touch with Joe. Right. Um, and it's just, a, it's, it's very natural for me. Absolutely. And did you, did you fall into the ticket business or you're in, you're interested in sports? Um, <clears throat> actually, uh, I was married to a different lady at the time. Uh, this was a long time ago. And we decided together that we wanted to open up a business that was web-based because she was a, an SEO person and a website designer. And so we, we actually looked at two or three different uh, businesses before we settled in on the ticket business. And when we settled in on the ticket business, all of my advisors, which would have been my former father-in-law, my father, uh, my biological father, so et cetera, et cetera. These mm-hmm. folks were all telling me that I was crazy. They were like, you're insane. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't get into that business. It's risky, you know, all of these things. But what I saw was a business that was becoming huge on the internet. And that's yeah. what we were trying to take advantage of was that, was that internet part of it. So I wouldn't say I fell into it, but. Um, well, so basically you did, you did due diligence, but it capitalized on, shall we say, the assets you had, which would be your, your personal skills, your network, and your former wife's uh, internet uh, skills. Yes, yes. Yeah. We had three different websites that we ran, and uh, we owned a house in Augusta, Georgia, that we used for uh, entertaining our clients at the Masters. I mean, the Masters was such a huge part of our business. Mm. Um, but yeah, an interesting business. You know, um, I continue to stay in risk type of businesses, I guess. Yeah, you certainly do. And just before we finish on that, you mentioned a, um, you were at the um, Ryder Cup in Dublin when it was here in, was it 2003? I think I can't remember when it was. Two, sorry, 2006. Mm-hmm. And uh, you told me a story about going around Dublin City with large amounts of cash in your pocket. And I tell you, you terrified me, Alan. Because <laughs> 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 if I, as not a, a well, any city, I suppose, is not where you want to be. But, but that's something I thought was really interesting. You're, you know, you did what you had to do. You 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 adjusted to the circumstances. You were able to trade in that environment. Yeah, and you know, I don't think that they're using cash today like they did back in those days. And this wasn't that long ago, really. But mm. but 
for the longest time that I was in that business, it was especially when you were at these major national events, when you were actually on site somewhere, you needed cash because you were always trying to buy tickets. And that meant wherever you were. So if you were in the pub and you ran into a guy and he had, you know, Friday tickets for the Ryder Cup, I was trying to buy them. And the currency to buy them was euros, you know. So, I mean, we were carrying a lot of cash around. But that was the same way with all events. And we used to joke in the business that you could get more money uh, robbing a ticket broker than you could <laughs> robbing a bank. Because the banks around here, I don't know how it is in Ireland, but the banks around here, unless it's a, a hub branch, yeah. they don't keep a lot of cash on hand. They may only have ten or 20000 And, uh, you know, when I would go to a Super Bowl, I would be looking to withdraw 200000 or wow. 300000 cash. I would have to drive around to five or six different banks to get that amount of loot, unless I wanted to order it ahead of time, which is what they always wanted me to do. Mm. But I never did that because I never knew exactly how much cash I was going to need until right about the time I was leaving. Well, that's that's an amazing story, and it it says a lot about your appetite for for being able to deal and and um, appetite for risk. But maybe we fast forward to today now. You sell a fairly comp. Well, maybe you can explain better than me, but maybe explain the company you work for and the product you sell. Sure. So, uh, Cambridge Global Payments is a 28 year old company headquartered globally in Toronto, Ontario, and offices all around the world. We are owned by a company here in the States called Fleetcore Technologies, which is a giant corporate payments company out of Atlanta, where I live. Um, we are in the business of foreign currency, basically. So we work with corporations that need to buy or sell currencies other than the functional currency that they use on their books uh, for the purpose of trade. So, you know, they're, they're an importer of wine from Europe, or they are a software company in Atlanta that is selling all over Europe and Australia, et cetera. Um, so at the base of the business, we're, we're providing them a way to change currencies and send currencies. So we, we, we do the currency exchange for them and we send the payments for them or, or, or we receive payments for them. Um, normally they would do this with their bank. Uh, the reason they would choose Cambridge over their bank would be that we are more geared for the middle market size companies. The middle market size companies just don't get the love and attention from Citibank and JP Morgan Chase and Barclays, you know, that, that we would that you be able to out. give to them. Yeah. And so, Generally, we're going to be a cost savings for them. Uh, we're going to be able to deliver tighter spreads and a higher degree of proactive service. Right. Um, you know, we provide a platform that allows them to do all the all of these trades online. It's as easy as buying a book on Amazon. If they can buy something from Amazon, they can probably hedge their foreign currency risk on our platform. Um, the other two things that we do is, is currency risk management, which is kind of my specialty area and what I focus on. So that's helping companies understand their risk exposures to foreign currency movements and putting into place hedging programs to help them mitigate that foreign exchange risk. And then thirdly is the fintech part of the business is that we provide an API to corporates uh, that want to integrate directly with Cambridge and be able to, you know, straight through process from their ERP system uh, and not have to leave that environment and log into Cambridge. Sure. Uh, but more times than not, when we're selling that solution, it's usually to another fintech that maybe has a domestic payment platform and they believe that they can grow their business by 
um, offering cross-border payments also, right. you know, with alongside domestic. So those are the things that we sell and, and that's what we do. I've been in this business for about 10 years and I've worked for a variety of different companies, a um, couple Canadian companies, a couple British company or one British company and, and one American company. Okay, well, just roll back there now. Uh, like, what is, what is, um, sorry, you, so you sell contracts to uh, mitigate risk on foreign exchange payments in the future. This is the area you specialize in. Yes. Can, can, can you explain that? So I, I presume most of the SMEs you work with wouldn't be thinking about that as the very first thing when they get 100,000 British pounds in the due in or something like that. What, what do you do for them? Um, so you're right, especially in America, uh, foreign exchange hedging is, is not as big here as it is in other countries. Um, I hate to say this, your audience perhaps will love it. Um, but Europeans, British, Canadians, Australians are, I think, far more experienced and sophisticated when it comes to foreign exchange transactions and hedging than most of their American counterparts. Reason is, is the US dollar has been, you know, the reserve currency of the mm -hmm. world for so long. And a lot of companies in the US that do business internationally still conduct all of those transactions in US dollars. They yeah. sell in US dollars, they buy in US dollars, and they prefer to keep it that way. That doesn't mean they're not exposed. I mean, I'm working on a case right now where the company is importing from China, paying the vendors in China in dollars, but the vendors in China are raising prices on my company here in Atlanta due to a strengthening Chinese yuan versus the dollar. Right. So a lot of companies think that if I'm doing it all in dollars, I don't have any risk, but you do. You actually could be a domestic company, completely domestic with no international exposure, but if you've got a competitor in your market that's coming from another country, again, you're kind of exposed because if their currency strengthens versus ours, that gives them pricing power. They can lower their prices now and still make the same amount of money, Yeah, which means yeah. that you actually still have currency risk. So, I mean, what we do with them is we sit down with them and we go through, uh, you know, there's really two basic kinds of risk. There's cash flow risk and there's balance sheet risk. Some might call that transactional risk and translation risk. It's, right. So, um, so and, uh, Alan, just at this point, so we were talking earlier too about selling. Is you you sell a you know a complex product or it could be a company? I'm sure you make it simple to for them because the they understand. But have to. How do you how do you sell it to you know some guys making them? Um, golf balls somewhere in Arkansas, or, you know, whatever. I mean, I mean, a business that's fairly straightforward. Um, you know, how do you find them? How do you talk to them? How do you sell to them? Good. Uh, good question. I find them in a variety of ways, but also, uh, you know, having been at this for 10 years, I already know where a lot of them are, you know, so I, I've, especially in the Southeastern United States, I, I, I know most of the players, you know, there's always new ones coming online. Um, but I, I don't cold call very much. I, I used to be a prolific cold caller. When I was a young man, I was a cold calling machine. Even when I entered this business, I built my first book in this business off of cold calling. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that cold calling is completely dead, but I heard on a podcast just this weekend that the pickup rate right now for cold callers in the United States is about 4%. So if you make a yeah. hundred dials, 
you might talk to four people, all four of which are probably pissed off that you interrupted their day. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I do make cold calls, uh, but not in any great quantity. I, I work with referral partners. I try to find people that are in other businesses that uh, either network with the people I'm trying to sell to or somehow are connected to people I'm trying to sell to. And, you know, we pay a fairly handsome referral partner fee to those that want to monetize that. Um, so I get a lot of referrals incoming from those referral partners. I'm always trying to cultivate new referral partners. Um, and has that changed much with COVID? Are you just doing less travel or what? I'm not traveling hardly at all. Uh, I, I could travel uh, for a while. We were restricted from traveling, but now, you know, if I had a big enough opportunity somewhere like say Oklahoma, if I wanted to fly out there and go see them, I could, mm -hmm. but that's another thing that's really changing is that the um, people that we're selling to, they generally don't want to see us. I saw another stat the other day that said 20% of, of B2B buyers in America do not ever want to go back to the way it was before where us salespeople would fly in and come sit down in their office with them. Mm -hmm. I'd love to go sit down in their office with them. <laughs> but frankly, I think a lot of them, they don't want us to come. Yeah. And I think that we're actually getting better engagement and more meetings right now in really? this online virtual setting. I don't think it's as intimidating maybe to them. Mm. And so- That's very, that's very interesting, Alan. That's really interesting. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, I resisted the, the video calling thing for a while, mm. uh, but then I finally embraced it and, and went at it wholeheartedly because I think it's here to stay. I mean, if I can take you to play golf or I can take you out to dinner or out for drinks, that's great for relationship building too. But right now, this is where we are. And, and, and I think it's going to stay this way for quite some time. Um, okay. You know, as far as mm -hmm. other ways I've sort of changed my approach, um, I would tell you that, that I was in a rut. I, I got into a rut. Anybody who's in sales, if they haven't ever been in a rut, they haven't been in sales very long. <laughs> the greatest salespeople fall into ruts. Uh, yeah. It just happens. You know, it's I liken it to working out. I liken it to exercising. You know, if you go to the gym every day, it's easy to keep going. Yeah. But, you know, if I decide to take a weekend or a week or two off, go on vacation, drink like a fish and not <laughs> exercise, when I come back, it's going to be really hard to get my ass back into that gym. And it's kind of the same thing with the, with the prospecting and business development. If you stop doing it, you're going to die. Your pipeline's going to kill you. Your pipeline's going to go away and you're, and you're going to, you're just going to die as a salesperson. The mm -hmm. lifeblood of a salesperson is new conversations and we need to be having them as often as possible. Even if you don't think that person is a direct prospect, yeah. you should view every new engagement with any person as valuable because you just never know who they're going to introduce you to no, or, or what idea they might, uh, give you. I, I did a call, a lunch club call a week ago with a guy who's not even in sales, who gave me a great sales idea. So mm. you just, you, you never know. And, and I think salespeople can be very transactional sometimes. It's the nature of the game really, but you really need a longer term strategy if you're going to be at it for a couple of years. You know, it's, it's a fight you, life. But you do, but you, you, Sorry, you yeah, need no. to, 
the, the thing I was going to say is that you need to have a mentality and an attitude that's like a shark in that they're not always hunting, right? But they are hunting a lot of the time. And there are some sharks that sleep stationary. But there are some sharks that sleep actually while they're moving because if they don't continue to move, they get forced to the ocean floor. And I use the shark as the analogy because I tell people that what I do is I, I swim around and I look for food. Mm -hmm. and, and what I mean by that is, is I get on LinkedIn and I will start looking at things. And there's an old song, you might remember it because you told me earlier, you're a music fan. There's an old song by a band called The Fix. And the song is, one thing leads to another. <laughs> and is, as long as you're always moving as a salesperson and you're always yeah. you know, trying to find new contacts, new businesses, what happens as a byproduct of that is, you know, I may be looking at this company and they don't look like they have FX, but I see that the CFO worked at this other company and they do. So one thing leads to another. You know what I mean? I, yeah, I, I go to yeah. that company, I go to the next company, it's and then I talk to that guy yeah. Yeah, and he introduces me to somebody else and so on and so forth. But if I stop moving, all of that magic stops happening. Right. Okay. Oh, well, that, that's brilliant about the sales. I, I think that's something that people are going to find really interesting. But you also mentioned music there. We were having a conversation about music earlier. But let's have a, what sort of music, what, what sort of music do you like? I mean, what's your range of music? It's huge. I started listening to music uh, avidly as about a three or four year old. I have a sister who's eight years older than me. And uh, these were 78s and eight track <laughs> tapes that I used to raid when she was at school. I would, I would just sit around and listen to her music all day long mm -hmm. and started playing the piano at about seven, started playing the guitar a couple of years after that. Then I left music for a long time in terms of playing it and didn't really get back into playing music myself until probably my late twenties when I picked the guitar back up. But to answer your question, uh, I listen to bluegrass, I listen to jazz, I listen to blues, I listen to Americana, I listen to Britpop. There's a lot of great Irish performers that I like. Uh, I mean, I, if, if the music is good, I listen to anything. I listen to Latin music, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in just, just about anything. Um, this morning I was listening to, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. John, but I was listening yeah. to Dr. John's first and second records from the late sixties. He's a yeah. New Orleans. Yeah, no, I know him. Yeah. Um, yeah so and then what, I spent, sorry, I spent some current, time. What are you ahead. currently um, listening to the most? What do you like the most at the, at the moment? Lately, I've been revisiting a band from my youth called Fish, which is a jam band. They're sort of the heir apparent to the Grateful Dead here in the United States. Right. When I was a young guy, I got uh, turned on to the Grateful Dead and spent a lot of time following them around the country as a college student. I think I saw the Grateful Dead with Jerry Garcia around 70 times, maybe yeah. 71, 72 times. Yeah, as much as that. Oh, yeah. I, you know, deadheads were religious about following yeah. the band. So, you know, it was a different show every night. So and there were, there were, really, there were, jam, there were mostly jam sessions, weren't they, I think? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, the Grateful Dead's music was all, a lot of it was old folk music, you know, that they just souped up into their jam band rock and roll type of stuff. I mean, 
I think somebody famous once said that the Grateful Dead was country music for people who like to use LSD. <laughs> yeah, because it is it is kind of country music. You know, I mean, some of it is country folky stuff. Yeah. But Fish is not really like that. Fish is, you know, I don't know if you know them, but they're from Vermont. I don't really uh, know them, but I've heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. They're kind of like the Grateful Dead, but they're more rock and roll than the Dead was. And mm -hmm. I've been listening to a lot of their, uh, revisiting a lot of their stuff lately. But I listen to music all day while I work. And I'm one of these guys who likes to listen to albums. I, you know, I, I don't want to listen to your mixed list. I want to go back and and take, you know, Eric Clapton's library and listen to every single album, you know, right. or, or Led Zeppelin or whoever, whomever it may be. But I, I would say, even though I listen to all that stuff, at the end of the day, I'm a classic rock guy. <laughs> yeah, you go to music, yeah. So yeah, me here, same with me, I guess, really, if I'll be honest about it, but uh, I do listen to a lot of different types. So you, you've, let's uh, tell everyone what you've nominated as the outro song. Sitting on Top of the World by Doc Watson. He did not write the song. The song was written, I think, in the 20s or 30s. I don't remember who wrote it, It's, uh, but it's been widely covered by tons of people. Uh, still getting covered up to this day. I believe Jack White uh, recently did a cover of it. Um, but I picked the Doc Watson song uh, because... Doc Watson is really an American treasure. He's deceased. He was a blind man who was just one of the best flat picking guitar players of all time. I was lucky enough to see him live a couple of times here in Atlanta. Um, but when you and I talked the first time, I was explaining to you that a lot of the mountain music here, you know, Appalachian music, bluegrass music is influenced by old Irish folk tunes. Mm. Um, like, a great example, uh, there's a song, I don't know if it's Irish, but I think it is. Uh, it could be Scottish or Welsh, uh, but the Grateful Dead did a song called Peggio. It sounds <laughs> Irish. Anytime I hear something with an O on the end, boyo, <laughs> Peggio, I think Irish. So yeah. uh, it could be an old Irish folk tune, but you know, a lot of that music comes from yeah. the Irish and the Scots that immigrated into the, that region of the United States. Um, and that's why yeah. I picked it. Okay, brilliant choice. Alan, listen, really a pleasure to talk to you and listen to your, your wise words about sales and your good taste in music. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. All right. In the spring, one sunny day, my sweetheart left me. Lord, she went away, and now she's gone, and I don't worry. Lord, I'm sitting on top of the world. She called me up from down in El Paso. She said, Come back, Daddy. Now she's gone And I don't worry Lord, I'm sitting On top of the world I 
you don't like my peaches, don't you shake my tree. Get out of my orchard, let my peaches be. And now she's gone, and I don't worry. Lord, I'm sitting on top of the world. And don't you come here running, holding out your hand. I'm gonna get me a woman like you got your man. But now she's gone. And I don't worry, Lord, I'm setting on top of the world. Was in the spring, one sunny day, my sweetheart left me, Lord, she went away. And now she's gone, and I don't worry, Lord, I'm setting on top of the world. 